Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. In 1974, a two-year-old Korean girl named Mi Jin Kim was sent from the country and culture of her birth to the United States, where she was adopted by a man and a woman who would become her American parents, and where she would become the artist and writer Mary Kim Arnold. Her new book, Litany for the Long Moment, is her attempt to grapple with that history and its aftermath to understand the experience of that girl she once was and how that girl shaped the woman she would become. Arnold writes, I will never know for certain what transpired in those first two years of my life. I only know that I am continually drawn back, tethered to the wispy, blurred possibilities of the mother I will never know, a language I do not speak, the life I will never have. Through a dazzling range of literary strategies, from the use of archival documents and family photographs to primers on the Korean language and the work of her fellow Korean-American artists, Arnold explores these wispy, blurred possibilities. She takes us into her need to know this never-realized self and this life she never lived. By stunning and poignant turns, her book reveals the complexities of the lives we do end up living the hauntings that make us who we are, and the unexpected ways in which great art and artists pull us apart and piece us back together. Mary Kim Arnold, welcome to the New Books Network. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So you have a book that's come out, uh, Litany for the Long Moment, and it's beautiful and stunning, and I cannot wait to, to introduce our listeners to it. But before we get to that, um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about you as an artist and as a writer in your practice, because you don't only work on the page. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, thank you so much for uh, your kind words about my book. But I think, I guess I think of myself primarily as a writer, um, but I've always done little like crafty things and things with my hands. And primarily um, while I was writing this book, I started sewing um, these little dresses, which you know I can talk a little bit more about later if you'd like. Um, but I found that making the switch to something that I could do uh, that had a tangible um, outcome, you know, that was something that I could hold was really helpful in the writing process. So for the last couple years, I've done a lot of textile and um, paper work, um, sort of, and it's part of the writing process in a way, or at least it was for this book. Um, so I do, you know, and I'm not formally trained as a visual artist at all, though I took some like, you know, classes as an undergrad, but um, I think of myself primarily as a writer, but all of these things sort of feed it, all of these other things sort of feed it. And, you know, particularly with the um, textile project that I was working on and the paper things that I was working on, it was sort of came out of learning certain Korean uh, techniques, this paper making technique called chunchi. So it felt very much related to, you know, what I was thinking about in the book as well. 
Could you tell us a little bit about your project, Redress? I think that might be a nice way towards leading us to the book. Sure, sure. Yeah. And so that's what I started while I was um, working on this book. Um, I, at some point, you know, so I, um, as you know, I'm adopted and I came to the United States about two and a half. And my mother, my adoptive mother, of course, saved the outfit that I arrived in, which was, you know, pretty much everything that I had. It was like two pairs of tights and a shirt and a little a-line dress and hat. And um, she saved these for me and I had them for a long time, of course. And at some point when I was thinking about this book, I went looking for that stuff and the dress was gone. I lost this dress. And, you know, to try to figure out how I did that is a whole other story. But at some point I thought, well, what if I tried to recreate it? And so I thought a lot about what that might mean symbolically, like I'm redressing my two and a half year old self. And then that made me think about all of the other um, adoptees, all of the other children who are traveling and for whom, you know, there might be this kind of item uh, article clothing that took on this weight and meaning um, because it was, you know, one of the few things that they might have that was evidence of their lives before um, adoption. And so that's sort of what it started from. And I thought, well, if I were going to remake the clothing that I would wear, what would I want that to be like? And I was thinking about it. So at first I thought, well, would I write in the garment, you know, you are loved, or would I write, you know, would I try to send some sort of message? Um, and ultimately I didn't end up doing anything like that, but I, um, I decided that making these dresses and kind of thinking about them in terms of what they um, represented was a powerful thing. There are um, 200,000 approximately Korean adoptees living abroad, and so that number was um, a compelling one to me. And obviously I had no ability to really understand what that meant in terms of individual lives. So I thought, well, I can't do 200,000, but I certainly can maybe try this approximation to understand scale. So it was one for every thousand. So I made 200 of these dresses. And um, it was important to me to make them, you know, I mean, I obviously sewed them on a machine, but each one um, individually, like a lot of people would ask me if I wanted help uh, making them. And it was really important to me to do them all myself. Um, and the other thing that became important after I'd made a couple was that I wanted to use, um, all sort of recycled domestic textiles. So, uh, bed sheets, uh, tablecloths, the idea being that they had a domestic life, um, before I got them and there was no way for me to really know what that was. And so symbolically it took on this, you know, sort of prior domestic uh, truth to them. And um, I made them all in white because white is um, traditionally associated with mourning in Korea, Korean, traditional Korean culture. And so I thought, well, what if, um, you know, what if there was something that was not really overt, but something that subtly asked people, you know, is this always a celebratory event or is it more complicated? So then you displayed these in a gallery show. Is that right? I did. I did. I had um, 
I had the opportunity to be in this textile show and um, the curator, Brooke Goldstein, was really great to work with. And um, we had developed some ideas of how to um, hang them because it's, you know, sort of an odd thing to try to figure out how to hang 200 toddler size dresses. Um, and, you know, I can say now that the show is over that our first idea was a big disaster when we actually got to the hanging. We had, I bought all this hardware and I, um, it, you know, with this vision that they were going to almost, um, if you can imagine a like dry cleaner uh, ramp, you know, that they would go up this hallway and circle around. Anyway, that didn't work. So what we ended up doing is facing them all out on individual hooks and what that actually did, and I have some photos on my website, but what that actually did was allow you to see um, the just overwhelming volume of them, and it allowed you to actually see them each individually uh, a little bit better. So the effect, I think, was much more, you know, a confrontation with all of these little individual lives, which is sort of what I had hoped for. And I, you know, I wasn't able to do the sort of message in the dress. But what I did do was um, each dress had two different tags. One tag was um, a birth date. And these came from uh, this database, this online database of everyone, every Korean adoptee who was actively searching for their birth families. And I sort of did a random selection from that database that included their date of birth and the country where they ended up um, being adopted to. And then the other tag was about um, memory. So one of the things that this made me think about was, you know, people always ask, uh, often ask adoptees who are older when they're adopted, you know, do you have any memories? Um, people often ask me, do you have any memories of Korea? And I really um, don't. But over the years, what's become sort of more... Um, of a feeling of loss for me is that I don't have uh, any memories of being remembered. So like, you know, when my kids were little and even still, I'm able to say to them, oh, you know, when you were a year old, you spent that, you know, six months wearing this bucket on your head and your first word was cat and you love to eat peaches and how those um, moments kind of, reaffirm the connection between me and my child and reaffirm the um, sort of caretaking and loving of that relationship. And that was something that I felt like I don't have any stories of what I was like then. And nobody said to me, I remember the day you were born or anyway. So um, I had these memories and some of them um, were contributed. I asked people to just share a treasured childhood memory and the um, idea was to sort of gift these symbolic children with these stories that they might not otherwise have. That's just so beautiful. And, and I think one of the many reasons that I was hoping that you'd be able to start by describing this project is I can imagine for the, the visitor who walks into the gallery that, that one of the experiences would be this confrontation with just this great proliferation of dresses, mm -hmm. the overwhelmingness of seeing all of these girl-sized dresses and the bodies that would have inhabited them. And, and there's this kind of 
cultural awareness of 200,000 children that are, that are going off to be adopted. Um, and then knowing the care that you took with each one, I think that, that Lydney for a long moment ties in nicely because it's almost entering into the experience of, of one of the people that would have been inside those dresses. Yeah, yeah. And um and I I'm going to ask you an impossible question so there's no way you can answer. <laughs> but um but what I'm going to ask and well, I'm going to ask it now and then explain why I'm asking you an impossible question. But I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the biographical circumstance that you're reckoning with that you're not framing because that's that's not the right word but but trying to to bring into context or visibility in litany for the long moment. And I guess the, the reason I'm, I'm asking is I think it might be helpful for listeners to know how the, the life that's getting transformed and, and queried into and taken up um, in art. I think that trajectory might be helpful as we talk about the book, because the book is, is so singular and unique, and there's so many facets to it, and I, I'm looking forward to illuminating those. But I think if listeners had kind of a, a centerpiece of, you know, here's the life that's that's getting transformed into art or or reckoned with, um, that that might provide us with a kind of entry. Sure, sure. I'll see. Um, <laughs> I'll see what I can do. Um, so I guess the and and certainly tell me if this is not what you mean by. Uh, this question, but so what I know is I was um, about two and a half when I came here. I um, there was some period of time when I lived with a foster family. Uh, I really have no idea how long that was, um, but I also can surmise from that that I was well cared for. I was a healthy child. Um, you know, I was. Uh, pleasantly round. <laughs> I was well fed. I was healthy. Um, by all um, uh, appearances, it seemed like I had been well cared for. Um, there, the woman who arranged the adoption, uh, Aung San Wong, she actually had, um, she was sort of well known in adoption circles. And I, I want to say that there was even a profile of her in um, some movie that, uh, that, of course, escapes me at the moment. But she arranged for several um, adoptions, and I want to say maybe like the scale of a hundred, not you know thousands. But she and she only handled a certain number of cases. Um, but so she ran a small baby's home um, in Korea, and she personally. Um, worked on a lot of these adoptions. So there was definitely some sense that, you know, there was some care and um, uh, it wasn't a completely like anonymous, you know, um, the sort of image that you might, that one might get about orphanages. Um, I don't think that was the case from the best I could surmise. Um, I grew up in a suburb of New York City, um, this town called Bronxville, which sort of, and where I lived in this, um, apartment building that sat at the intersection of, if you know this area at all, Yonkers, Tuckahoe, and Bronzeville. Um, and my mother was um, first generation uh, of Portuguese immigrants, the daughter of Portuguese immigrants, and my father was um, the son of uh, Italian immigrants. 
and we lived in a primarily um, white sort of working class um, community and I went to uh, Catholic schools. <laughs> um, and is this the direction that you're, you're asking? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I think that this is the story that's that's so fascinating um, in its own right. And then there's the encounter and the the lens or the the prism that you bring to us in the book. Um, and I just know at the beginning when you were explaining redress, you said, as you know, I'm adopted. And I thought, well, I do. I've been researching you and being fascinated in your work since I encountered this book. But I want to make sure the listeners have a full sense of the story to, yeah, out of yeah. which the book springs. Well, there's a, a little, it reminds me of this little anecdote that I think I may have included in the um, book that one of the stories that my family tells is that my um, there was like a little note in, in my parents couldn't have children. And, you know, there's a family story that they were reading the newspaper one day and my mother looked over the newspaper and said to my father, oh, they're looking for people to adopt Korean children. Should we look into this? And my dad was like, sure. And then he said, well, what's a Korean or something like that? So that's a little tidbit that I um, that they have <laughs> handed down to me for context. <laughs> so so here you are as an adult, right? And um, and you could imagine a, a naive question that might be something like, "Well, this is an experience that was before yeah, you could remember, right. right? How can that become the content of a book?" Yeah. <laughs> It's a very naive question, right? Um, but I think it's part of what produces the fascination. And of course, the assumption in, in that naive question is that you have to have kind of live yeah. recall um, of a certain way that we think about memory, right? That I can recall this moment when I was six or when I was 16 or when I was 26 um, and replay it in my head as though it were right. a video. Um and so, so how does reckoning with an experience that's before kind of live memory or before that moment where the, I think psych, psychologists mm-hmm. call it the pruning, uh-huh. it happens at six and it happens at 12, where we shave off the memories. So right now my two-year-old son can remember <laughs> one and a half. Um, yeah. Um, so so how, how as the the condition that you want to begin searching for in the book or exploring or articulating, how does that work? As yeah. So um, I guess there, you know, there are a few different like origin stories for this book. And one of them is about um, language. And I was in um, a graduate program in poetry um, and we were talking about um, just we were starting to talk about just like syntax and the rhythm of sentences and how, you know, different languages, of course, um, have different sentence construction and, you know, how does that affect the way um, people who write in other languages write poetry, you know, just in sort of this general sense. And it really made me think a couple things. One, it made me think, oh my goodness, do I have some, you know, I was old enough to speak. Uh, I had a few words and some simple sentences when I was adopted um, so I wondered, oh, do I have any, um, like Korean-ness through the language in me, accessible to me as a poet, you know? Um, so that was one thing that it prompted. And the other was when you think about, um, 
all of the work that a language does in relation to the culture it's embedded in, there's all of this stuff that sort of transcends the, you know, the words and the, um, and the simple content of the words, but there's like a way of thinking about sentence construction and a way of thinking about rhythm and sound and um, all of these other um, sort of literal and, and symbolic things that a language holds for people. And so I started wondering about that and so I actually started taking Korean for a little while um, and looking, which I include, I think, some of in the book, and just sort of with this open question of, like, if language is so um, embedded in culture and understanding and sort of the kinship, this uh, linguist Joshua Fishman talks about the kinship that language represents uh, of a people, you know, what happens when someone starts in one language and is embedded in that language and then is taken out of it? And, you know, one thing I thought was, well, maybe once I start taking these language classes, it will all come back to me. You know, there's something that's lodged deep in my memory that will all come back. Um, and I can't say that that happened, really. And I read something uh, at some point when I was researching this book that suggested that maybe that wasn't the you know, that wasn't necessarily the case that you actually can lose all of that, um, all of that language. But, um, I sort of lost my hand about it. Um, but this question of like, what, if you don't, uh, if you don't have that memory, um, if you don't have the language to put the memories in, where does the knowledge or the experience get stored? And of course it gets stored in the body. Um, and during the same sort of discussions in, the, in grad school, we were also talking a lot about ways of knowing, ways of um, communicating that are not purely discursive, right? So, you know, some kinds of experimental writing poetry is a great example of this. Uh, visual art, I think, does this too. It, um, what it's conveying is not bound to language or uh, narrative, language in the sense of narrative, like communicating information, that there's another way that we know things that's more um, deep in the body. And so that was like a starting premise, I think, uh, for the book, that the body carries memory, the body carries experience um, that, you know, is uh, created and held even before language. So it's almost as though language is, is sort of a way in which we're rooted in a culture, rooted in a system, rooted in a, a way of being, and it's creating that being, it's embodying it. And here you are in 1974 at two, and you're uprooted and you go through this trauma of, of leaving one entire system, one entire embodiment, and the language that spoke you as much as you spoke it, and, and finding yourself in this new environment. Um, a huge trauma before you're able to articulate or even understand what's happening. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And, um, and it was, you know, I, I think there's a way that that trauma... Um, kind of intersects with other kinds of experience, you know, an immigrant experience, uh, 
the refugee experience, um, any experience that you find yourself somewhere, you know, um, foreign, uh, unexpected, alienating, um, that just transcends or supersedes or whatever you want to say, um, language. You know, there's just a, a way of recognizing bodily, this isn't quite right. You know, I don't quite belong here. Things, uh, the sensory experience is different. Things smell different. Things look different. You know, there's a whole, um, set of things that cue us to, um, unfamiliar, um, and, and, you know, other. So, so then suddenly you're in a position where you want to try to capture that in a medium that includes language uh, in a book, right? I wonder if you could, you could turn directly to the book by telling us a little bit about what a reader would encounter in terms of the, the book object, because it's, it's not your standard book. It's not something that you would expect to see or might think of immediately when somebody says, oh, there's this new book out. Yeah. So um, I guess, you know, sort of formally, um, there were two things that I was thinking about working with. And one was this um, questionnaire. Uh, at, at various points, I had tried to contact the um, agency that had some part in my adoption um, in Korea, and uh, I guess to make a long story short, one of the things that you could do was apply to be on this Korean television program called I Miss That Person. And in order to apply, the first step was to fill out this um, questionnaire, had about 12, 15 questions. And they were sort of, you know, I, I found them kind of odd and amusing, like, what is your opinion of Korea? And have you ever had any difficulties in your life? You know, sort of unanswerable questions in a way. Um, so that was one uh, sort of organizing principle. I tried in various ways to, for a time, I tried to answer those questions in various ways. Um, and then the other sort of formal principle was that I, I took this trip back to Korea in 2000 and we had this uh, very detailed itinerary of all the things that we were going to do, all the places we could visit. And so um, I thought of those two things as kind of uh, grounding mechanisms. So there are section, there are you know, fragmented sections, and each section has either um, to start it a uh, question from the survey or a uh, point on that itinerary. And I guess the other. Then you. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Oh please. Well, then you also have a number of of documents. Yeah. And a number of images. And if, if we think about the, the book experience um, in a larger sense, there's there's a, a video that is both sort of a, a preview of it, but can inform it if the viewer slash reader wants to encounter that. And so, so there's a multimedia dimension to it as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was really, um, I guess I was thinking about that in a couple of ways. Right, so the, the documents, the artifacts, part of what... Um, to me is so um, compelling about them and why I ultimately just needed to include some, you know, reproduction of documents and, and uh, images was because it just, to me, was a very, um, they were the only things that I had to kind of make sense of anything. And so it seemed really important to try to convey um you know, on the one hand, the kind of visual information they gave, like, oh, this, you know, 
tattered piece of paper that has this medical report on it, um, you know, to convey that visual information, like what it actually looked like. And on the other hand, to maybe highlight how little information it actually gave in terms of the questions that are, you know, that might be important to um, the investigation that I was trying to do. Like, it's great that I, you know, had my measles shot, but that's not necessarily information that I want, um, but it's what I have. So there was definitely um, that impetus that I had to sort of just show, like, the reader what, what I was talking about, what I had, how, how few artifacts I had. Um, and I guess the other, you know, the other thing that I would say about it is that I, the sort of narrative, um, linear, like text-based exclusively form didn't seem like it could accommodate this um, sort of story that has all of these gaps and holes and um, fissures. Um, so there was at least on some level, you know, a thought that, well, it's more like... Um, encountering a box of stuff than maybe uh, a traditional narrative. And, you know, how might I suggest um, that sense of just sort of sifting through these documents, trying to make meaning between the gaps in it, um, sort of returning to certain things because the sense-making couldn't always happen in a chronological or linear fashion. So that was some of what um, undergirded that decision to have the book look the way it did. And then um, I sent to um, SA Press, uh, Press you know, a bunch of these photos and a bunch of these quotes. And um, Amy Harrison just did such a beautiful job, I thought, of like um, positioning them and using the white space around them and sort of putting them in... Uh, you know, I had them in an order and I had them associated with certain things, but I think she just did such a great, a great job of like conveying some of the spirit I was trying to communicate um, in her sort of artistic design of it too. Yeah, I think one way to characterize the accomplishment of the book is, at least in one facet, is how do you write about absence? How do you capture what's missing? How do you work with the negative space that is your experience and the choices that you've made to, to share objects and documents? Um, and even the use of fragment, I think it captures that. Um, it captures what's missing or those, those absences. Yeah, yeah, I really... Um... You know, in a way, it's, uh, I feel like it's also um, like a family scrapbook in a way, too. Like, there's that, I think that um, notion creeps in there as well, because I'm trying to include these photographs and I'm trying to include these little family moments. So there is, you know, some elements of what you would expect a family history to be. Um, but then, right, there are all of these other. Um, questions that intrude and um, things that are harder to maybe make sense of within that framework as well. Well, I think that um, 
one of the the surprising elements is the amount of of thinking you do about the very nature of the work that you're presenting and and one means for doing that is bringing in the work of other artists um and so maybe you could could take us into how it is that these other artists these other voices help inform your process hey i realize now that after you've used that questionnaire from the Korean television program, they, there can be no impossible questions because those are the most impossible questions. It's true. Um, so, so here's one. Could you, could you maybe take us into to that aspect of the book by telling us about the title? What does Litany for the Long Moment mean? Sure, sure. Yeah, so um, uh, let's see. I, I'm trying to see how far back I have to go for this to make sense. But um, so the photographer, Francesca Woodman, who figures in... Um, the book some, uh, you know, she, um, well, let's see. So she used herself as the subject of uh, most of her photographs. And she, this is uh, in the seventies that she's um, studying here at the Rhode Island School of Design. Um, and she is very like elusive in her photographs, but she's also very present. And when I first saw some of her photographs, I was really drawn to that idea, that tension between like being so visible, um, so sort of exposed and vulnerable in one sense, but also being so elusive um, in another, like she's always shrouded or hidden or um, sort of avoiding the gaze of the camera. And so just as an artist, um, and her work was just very compelling to me in that, in that one aspect. And um, the, in some of the writings about her, and of course, <laughs> I, the woman, the critic who wrote the uh, bit of text that I'm thinking about, her name is, is escaping me at the moment, um, <laughs> it's in here. I happen to have the book right in front of me. <laughs> like, of course it is, because I've talked about it so much. Um, but she, she was talking specifically about this process, this development process that um, Francesca Woodman was using at the end of her life, which um, just the shutter stayed open for a very long time. And it created these very blurred and wispy and sort of almost um, like disappearing images. And she has this beautiful phrase that says, like, in the end, the camera captures not the girl, but the long moment that it looked at her. And I thought, that was such a wonderful and poetic turn of phrase that you're still not seeing her. You're just seeing the seeing. <laughs> and so that was what inspired the, um, the long moment idea. So how is that a, a way into the book? If, if titles are kind of doors or, or ways into something, how does that open up the experience of the book? So I guess I think of it, um, you know, in terms of my own both, perhaps the way I'm seen and the way I see myself, you know, I, um, I grew up in a white family in a white neighborhood and went to, you know, I think I encountered the first um, Asian people, Asian community when I got to college, really, you know, in any sort of significant way. And so there was always, I was very aware of the sense of being um, conspicuous, being visible. So there's this one way in which the, you know, the Korean adoptee life is very visible, at least during the time period that I'm talking about, um, is very visible. Um, but that doesn't necessarily, you know, reveal anything about the person. It's just this 
way that um, the, the conspicuousness of the person takes the place of the individual life, I think. And I feel like that um, is something that Ruby Woodman was playing with uh, in her work as well, that you end up seeing um, a representation of a life and then you impose on it all of these things as the viewer. Um, I should say here as well that, you know, Francesca Woodman um, killed herself at 21. And so that, of course, cast the shadow over her life and her work and everybody wants to be able to interpret it and everybody wants to be able to say that they, you know, they see these hints of what's to come in the work. Um, and that sense that your life is available to public interpretation um, was also something that, that was a very compelling idea to me that um, as a transnational adoptee, um, in a white family, there was something about the fact of that that made my life, the life of my family, um, seem, you know, permissible for other people to inquire about, you know. Um, so people would, when I was little, people would come up to my mother and me in the grocery store and, you know, ask her, like, oh, what's, what, what's going on here? Is she your child? And, you know, so this sense that... Um, there are certain ways of being in the world that require a kind of um, defense, explanation um, that invite or you know seem to suggest uh, permission to have a, a public um, assessment or a critique or evaluation. Um, I think was also true uh, in a certain way in Francesca Woodman's life um, as well. So. I suddenly feel a little bit of anxiety. I probably should have felt it earlier about being the interviewer, <laughs> <laughs> right? Where you know, your your beautiful articulation um, that suddenly there are expected questions. There are there's presumed knowledge uh, in those questions, and it might come in the form of a television program questionnaire. It might come in the the form of um, white voices, you know, asking, well, tell me about this situation. Could you just rehash the autobiographical experience out of which this book came? That sort of stuff. Um, so maybe I could ask this question. What question would you like readers to ask of this book? Oh, wow. Or to ask of you, the author who created it? Well, yeah, I guess, um, well, I guess I would preface the response by saying, you know, um, in reading it, you know, at, at events and, and at public readings, um, I'm, of course, you know, I have to take a certain path through the fragments. And there are some paths through it that feel, to me at least, in organizing them a little bit more complete um, than others. And so I often dwell on, um, because of the title and because of the photographs, I often dwell on uh, the Francesca Woodman aspect of it and um, uh, the photographs and the questionnaire because it seems like it's more excerptable. Um, but what I often, what I don't often get to talk about uh, as much are the Korean American artists referenced. And when I first um, encountered Teresa Cha's Dicte, which was in grad school, um, I, I, this may be a slight exaggeration, but I don't think so. Um, I think it was the first uh, book that I had encountered 
by a Korean American woman. Um, I don't think that's an exaggeration. And so, and um, I don't know if you're familiar with, with it or if you've seen it, but formally, it's just this like glorious, chaotic mess. You know, it's got images, it's got um, reproductions of, you know, images of handwritten notes, it's got uh, reproductions of typed letters. Um, it's organized in these nine sections, but beyond that, there isn't uh, an easy way to enter it um, if you're looking for a narrative or if you're looking for uh, an explanation of sort of what it's about, you know. And it sort of opened my mind to all of these possibilities of what kinds of stories, as a writer, you have permission to tell and what forms those stories might take. Um, and so I guess that her work and that book, despite, you know, the fact that I've talked about it a lot, I've talked about it in groups with people, I've read a lot about it. I still, you know, it's still really, um, elusive and, um, engaging, but also really frustrating in all of these ways as a text. Uh, it also has really influenced the way I think about composing something. And I think part of what, um, she asks us to do, and part of what maybe I was asking readers to do as well, was like, be okay with um, some disorientation, with some uh, maybe even discomfort, um, and that that maybe just sort of sitting with that and like reflecting on what that represented um, is a little bit of what I was experimenting with as well and sort of playing with and I guess that um that piece of it I don't often get to talk about from like a you know sort of like what are you doing as a you know experimental literary text like that piece of it um is, is a little bit more complicated to talk about I think then, then let me ask you about the the close of the book. I don't think that it'll, it will be a spoiler <laughs> alert. The beauty of the book will not be marred. Um, but you end with mm -hmm. Francesca Woodman, and you end with a technique that's now being yeah. called erasure. Um, and it's it's one of her letters from 1980. And uh, so, could you tell us about that artistic choice? Right. Um, I'll, I'll ask it maybe in a way that presupposes traditional aesthetic values, sure. whatever those are, right? In, in, a, in a book that's memoir and about the, the personal reckoning of an absent mother, why would you end on a note of someone else's writing that's blacked out rather than with a gesture of, you know, original capital R romantic assertion? Yeah, yeah right. Well, I think, um, you know, one of the things that was the most difficult about that survey, and there were a lot of difficult things, and I, I guess, you know, I never completed it, um, but one of the things that was the most baffling was this last question of write a letter to your mother, and in parentheses, they had helpfully written a long letter, you know, and I, <laughs> and I just kept thinking about this, like, I understand why they would ask. I understand, you know, a little bit of the purpose of it, but, you know, as the person trying to do this, it was unimaginable to me to like, what is the letter to your birth mother? What could that possibly be? And this like, you know, 
this sort of curious little explanatory note, a long letter was also like, you know, I would joke with my friends, like I could basically take every journal entry, everything I've ever written, send it in a giant carton to their office, you know, like that's the letter. My whole life is this letter. Um, so this idea of letters, <laughs> you know, this group um, hovered and the impossibility of the letter. And I, in the uh, book, toward the end, I do try to grapple with this and, you know, they're not really letters at all. They're just sort of these um, passages in which I attempt a letter. Um, and so in Francesca Woodman's artifacts that there was this, she had several letters that um, have been collected uh, as part of her, you know, work in the state. And, and I thought, well, what if I started with someone else's words, you know, with someone else's language? And there's a way in which, you know, her um, life has been with me during the, you know, attempt to do what I'm doing in this book. And the idea of taking on someone else's language also felt like, um, uh, you know, a resonant gesture for me as someone, you know, for whom this isn't really my native language, um, English. <laughs> and, um, and then, you know, what would happen if physically the reader of the document um, was frustrated from understanding the full story. And so, I mean, those may be sort of more uh, simplistic in a way than, than what your question was, but that was sort of like um, a way to address the letter question that felt somewhat more satisfying to me than continually going back and attempting this letter that I could, you know, quite literally never write. Yeah, the impossible assignment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so given that that's the end, and, and you said in other interviews that you knew that the letter would become the climax of the book, that that just seemed like where it would fit. Um, I'm curious if, if you see the book as having an arc, a trajectory. Um, you know, traditionally, the, the essay is a search and a say, a trial mm -hmm. of something do you see it as a sequence or do you see it much more as perhaps something like a gallery in which one encounters and sees different objects and the meaning making happens that way? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess this is the most um, truthful answer, but perhaps not the most like satisfying. Um, there are two, I guess there are two different things that I want to say about that. And one is, um, when I was uh, an undergrad, um, I was in a workshop with Robert Cooper, who was, at that time, this is 1992, 93, um, he was working uh, with his students almost exclusively in what was then called hypertext, and in a program that was newly developed called Story Space. And if you could imagine visually what this looked like, and this is all um, on, on the computer, um, it was sort of like if you had a series of index cards on a flat surface and each index card had a little bit of text and you could sort of move them around however you wished. And um, in story space, in this application, you could actually draw arrows, links from one bit of text to another, but there could be multiple, you know, um, 
ways of connecting them. So, you know, within a certain paragraph, you could have many words that were linked to others, which is now, of course, the way we understand the internet to be, but this was 1992. So it was very novel. Um, and, you know, that, that metaphor has really stayed with me in my writing life that, um, uh, I'm really compelled by things that you could imagine different kinds of meaning based on different juxtapositions. And, you know, if you move them around, do new, um, uh, nuances, do new complexities appear between them? So that was one thing I was thinking of. And the other thing that I was thinking of is, you know, at a certain point, um, because there isn't a traditional chronological um, narrative that I'm uh, working with, really, uh, I, I had just printed out all of my pages and physically taped them up to this wall in my house. Um, and I did make decisions. So there are certain kinds of associative decisions, certain kinds of like rhythmic decisions that I made. Um, it's not like a random uh, uh, pathway through, but it, those decisions I think were made with the recognition that um, there were other possible interpretations that might yield different kinds of um, meaning and you know, I guess on the theme of impossibility, the fact of the book that it's, you know, closed and encloses the text is a reality and a truth, but that I like to think that there's a way in which the pages and the fragments and the um, bits of story uh, can also be imagined as operating outside of the confines of the book as well. That doesn't sound too <laughs> wacky. It doesn't sound wacky at all. I think it's, it's, I, I'm trying to think um, if I've encountered a book like this before, I guess maybe one or two artist books, but really it's, it's such an amazing book in that from the very cover through to the back page, including the, the second to last page, the author picture, I mean, everything seems kind of placed um to add meaning to the book that it, it really feels like this, this entry into a space of, of memory and presence and reckoning and geez, things like cultural history, you know, a listener is going to be amazed if they go and read it and suddenly see, you know, here's the history of the Hangul alphabet and here's a little, what it's like to travel, you know, to Korea. And um, so it's part travelogue as well. There's just mm -hmm. so much going on. And I think, um, you know, there's an abundance of meaning, uh, a superfluidity that, that it's not easily captured. And when you go back into it, I think new associations come out of it. And I think that's a testament to what you've accomplished. Thank you. Thank you. That was a, that was certainly a hope, you know, <laughs> that there would be <laughs> things there that um, could be, you know, encountered anew. Well, as you, you finish this one and, and move forward, um, with your artistic career, you know, wh where are you now? I know you have a new book coming out. Could you tell us about that? Oh, sure. I have a, um, it's a, it's a, just a beautiful little chapbook that um, Artifact Press uh, is putting out. Um, and this is a, you know, a small press that they do everything on letterpress and um, stitched by hand. And so it's this gorgeous um, artifact. Um, and it is just a couple, it's a short, it's very short, it's like 15, 16 pages of poems that actually come from a collection 
of poems that I finished um, earlier this year. And it's sort of a, uh, the book is sort of weird in itself. The, the collection is weird, but I'll, I'll say that these poems are these little love poems that um, are kind of an homage to Carol Meso, who was another teacher of mine um, at Brown. And uh, she, while, during the time that I was there, she would often talk about this erotic song cycle that she was um, working on that, uh, and that idea really stayed with me of like, what would an erotic song cycle be? And what it became was this beautiful book called Oriole. And um, so it's a little bit of an homage to her, those poems in there. But those poems come from, um, are at the sort of center of this larger collection that is about um, war and women and work. And though I didn't intend that to be the three W's, I sort of think of it that way now. Um, I, of course, ended up uh, spending a lot of time thinking about and reading about the Korean War um, in when I was working on Litany for the Long Moment and sort of the circumstances that uh, from which the you know, sort of phenomenon of um, Korean adoption arose. Um, so, you know, war in that sense has been on my mind a lot. Um, and of course, you know, uh, the state of perpetual war that the United States has been in um, for decades now, you know, is, is sort of ever present. Um, but particularly um, the, the, it's a couple things like where women are in the war, both in the sense of, um, how their stories are told, their presence, their um, importance, the way women are used in war, um, and you know, <laughs> and then again, like bad elevator pitch. But the the other element um, that I was thinking about in the writing of those poems was also uh, in the constant onslaught of. Um, the Me Too and um, the uh, way that this administration um, speaks about, thinks about, or doesn't think about women um, also felt like a very, uh, something that was very pressing on all of the other questions that I was thinking about in the book. Um, so the... Um, the figure of, you know, I'm going all over the place, but this is sort of the way my mind works, which is maybe explains some of the composition of the book as well. But the, this, uh, I encountered this ancient uh, Assyrian warrior uh, called Semiramis, and it turns out that there's all this mythology around her, and the suggestion is that she is also an orphan um, because her mother was a goddess and um, uh, married a mortal man and, and gave birth to her. And so then she had to abandon this child and she threw herself into the sea. So the child was raised by doves and she went on, as the mythology goes, to become the fiercest uh, Assyrian warrior queen that the ancient world had ever known. Um, so she figures in there as well. And I guess I'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I was going to ask about the, the fourth W, which is the weirdness that you mentioned. Is it, is it that you're, you're using ancient Assyrian myth um, or are you doing something weirdly formal? For me, weird is an aesthetically positive quality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it's just, um, you know, uh, 
and maybe this is this maybe when you do this uh, so much, it becomes an aesthetic. But like the, this idea of like, can how many things that are sort of related can I put together, and what you know what might happen when they're put alongside each other? So the you know the um, her orphan story was compelling to me against some of the stuff that I was thinking about in terms of the war and war orphans and how that led to uh, you know other things that we've already discussed. And um, so it has these distinct sections. This book has these distinct sections. Um, but I think what it has in common is this question of, you know, where where are the women and what is the relationship of women to war and um, sort of uh, ends with some discussion of um, the Korean comfort women who were um, uh, forced into sexual slavery leading up to World War II by the Japanese um, Imperial Army. So, you know, again, this question of what happens to women uh, in times of war. I hope you'll come back and talk to us when you publish it. <laughs> we'll see what happens. <laughs> Mary Kim Arnold, thank you for being on the New Books Network. Oh, thank you so much. What a pleasure this was to talk with you. Thank you. My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Mary Kim Arnold, author of Litany for the Long Moment on the New Books Network.